You're listening to the PKJ and Yahweh podcast, where I take the supernatural world around us, connect it to complicated biblical theology, and then try and make it simple for everyone to gain revelation. If you're new to this podcast and would like more information, please go follow me on Instagram at kevin.scott.johnson. And now time for another episode from our apologetic series. translations of the Bible reliable. Oh my goodness. Are they reliable? Why would they not be reliable? Maybe translations. That's why, because they're not, they, I don't know if you know this, but way back in ancient Egyptian and Israel time, they did not use the English language. They did not use the English. Okay? It did not exist yet. It was all in different Asian type languages and Eastern languages at that time. They didn't even have English to our knowledge of any type. In this, in this era. So, is our, our current uh, translation of the Bible reliable? Well, how about this? I, I pretend I was the current, the original version, okay? And I gave Emma that version, okay? And then she said, man, I'm going to take what I heard from him, and I'm going to tell it to the next person. And down the line, and they keep translating it based off of the other translation. It's definitely according to what we just saw just now, not the best way to interpret. In fact, and we even had a good point there, like, so Emma got most of it, and then it got really lost as we got deep, just a little bit into it, but then Hamudi got, a, he went back to the source, and all of a sudden, he had a much closer and accurate translation. This table is, I know I'm skinny now, but this table is too close to the step for me. There we go. All right, yes, I'll compliment myself. But, you know, when you're buying a car, you know, like, how many of you ever bought a car before? That's what I thought. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that you go there, and you've never bought a car before, you don't know how to buy a car, you know, you might come up to him and be like, this thing can fit so much dang spaghetti in it. You know, like, you know, that's not a, that's not a very, uh, uh, an entrance uh, question you want to ask. You know, how much spaghetti can this car hold? You know, like, no. So, I mean, yeah, gel might matter. But I got a little video clip just to help you understand better how to inspect a car. We'll watch maybe like 30 seconds of it. Oh, look at that. <laughs> You know, pick a car. It's not just about what it looks like on the outside, you know. You, 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 you can see, 
you got to start to know what's under the hood. Just because you open the hood doesn't mean you know what's working in there. Even if it runs good, you might not know uh, what's happening on the inside. To be true, like, also, do you know all Chevy cars? Do you? You know what their normal common issues are? Do you know what their normal challenges are? You know when it makes that one sound, what it actually means? It's different than when a Ford car makes that sound? You see, knowing about cars isn't, uh, and how to drive one doesn't make you a specialist or a mechanic, right? You know, and how it performs. But likewise, you know, like, oh, what's that light on the dash? I guess it'll go away eventually, right? But it, it means that it makes one, you know, kind of a... Uh, you know, you know a little bit about cars, but not really enough to make buy a car. But literacy and cars can kind of go hand in hand a little bit. You know, just because you know a little bit about the car doesn't mean you know how to keep it running, right? Outside of putting gas in it. Likewise, a wise man once said, "The ability to speak does not make you intelligent." So, uh, a, a very wise man once once said that. But likewise, just being literate does not make you a master linguist or communicator. Just ask your parents. They might, uh, <laughs> uh, anyway. So I want to look today really briefly, as briefly as I can, on how we can trust, or can we trust, the translations of the Word of God. Be, not being master linguist or otherwise. So how do you know if, you can, if it is reliable? How, do you, how would you know if a car is reliable when it starts in the morning, right? Praise God. That's one way of knowing it's super reliable until it stops starting. But how do we know that the Word of God is reliable? It's not like we put a key in it and turn it on and, and all the lights buzz and all the other lights go, that are supposed to be on go off. So you're looking at it, man, well, can it be trusted? I guess is what we want to know. Can we trust the Bible? Yes or no? What do you guys think? Yes. Yes. Okay. Perfect. No. Okay. Awesome. But you're in the right place. Uh, to walk your dog, you know, and feed your fish, can it be trusted to do that? Can the Bible be trusted to walk your dog and feed your fish? Oh, it can't? I thought you just said the Bible could be trusted. I was going to go on vacation next month and let the Bible walk my dog and take care of her and feed my dad's fish. I thought you said the Bible could be trusted. What are you asking it to do? Oh, oh, what am I asking it to do? It's not a human. Got it. It's got to be trusted for its intended purpose. You're right. Good point. So we've got to understand what is the intended purpose of the Bible. Ultimately, its purpose is to reveal God to us. The whole purpose of the Word of God is not to teach us sciences, is not to teach us uh, all these other interesting things. Ultimately, its goal is to reveal God to His people. You can look at 2 Timothy 3, 14-17. It's up on the screen. It simply says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. That was referring to the Hebrew scrolls, the Old Testament, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the old, book, old Testament books of the Bible, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Its purpose is to reveal God to us. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Anyone like being incompetent? Okay, alright. That's not a good place to be. So, is it reliable for its intended purpose? Is it reliable for that intended purpose? I believe yes. And we can determine its reliability based off a couple quick factors. Listen to this. There's over 6,000 preserved manuscripts of the Bible. Okay? Of different scrolls of the Bible. It wasn't written as one big book. It's 66 books, different books. Do you know that in history... The second most preserved copies of any historical document record, period, is the Iliad of Homer. Is that door locked? I think someone's got locked out. Oh, is that 
Iliad, the Iliad of Homer, and there's only 600 of them. There's only 600 of them left. And people believe more that Homer existed in all these stories. We have more evidence. Plus, there's a 99.5% accuracy between all translations, and they were hand-transcribed over a millennia by scholars who gave a life of this. Archaeology supports every statement of the Bible that's been written in it, and records were written within 12 years of Christ's death. As early as 12 years after Jesus died, we have copies of those written documents. That's pretty cool. Pretty stinking crazy when you think about it, especially when you compare it to the Iliad of Homer, the closest record to his actual writing that we have is some, I believe, three or four hundred years after he wrote it and had died. Because it was orally communicated, we written down, we don't have the original writings. Pretty crazy. The Iliad of Homer is all about, uh, you know, myths and Greek, uh, you know, gods and goddesses, if you want to know what that is. But honestly, my favorite thing is the Dead Sea Scrolls. Anybody know what those are? So cool. Basically, there's a cave off somewhere in the Middle East, and some kid chucked a rock, and heard a, a, a jar shatter up in a cave in the top there, in this valley, and it went up there, and it was these scrolls that had been preserved and untouched. And up until that point, uh, our oldest record of our oldest record of the book of Isaiah, or any book from the Bible, a scroll of it was like, gosh, I think it was... Um, Anyway, I forget exactly how old it was, but this one predated that record by 1,000 years. Someone say, thank you. Yeah, how can you whistle the mask? I tried. You have to whistle in words. It's easier. Anyway, so with that said, and want to know what's really crazy? Is in this book of Isaiah, this scroll of Isaiah that predated the version, the oldest version we had at that time, was 1,000 years older, and it was word-for-word accurate, outside of a couple spelling changes that did not change the meaning of the text. That means over a thousand years, not a single bit of the story of the book of Isaiah that's in your King James Version right now, in 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 your home or at home, was different. Not a word was changed, not a title, crazy Record keeping. I can't even like remember the notes I took on Sunday last week, okay? Like if you came right. So, but definitely telephone game, it's not, okay? It's not a telephone game. Yeah, telephone game, it is not. (laughs) So, how then are the translations of the Bible made? How can you actually trust your Bible? Like, because are you reading it in Hebrew? Are you? Who's reading who reads the Bible in Hebrew? How good? Okay. Who reads it in, in, in Greek? You know, there's the Septuagint, which is which is the Greek translation for all of us, uh, you know, uh, Gentiles. You know, no, nobody. Okay, do, do we read it? How many guys? Anybody read it in anything other than English? How many? What do you read in? Uh, Iraqi Arabic. That's awesome. So that's a, actually a probably actually in some ways a little bit closer uh, to some of the more uh, languages that were used in writing it. Uh, so it probably makes a little more sense. Which brings me to this thing: is how do you translate something? You know, another wise great man once said, you can, all, you can always do your best. Okay? You can always do your best. You can't always be the best. Everyone's best is different. But you can always do your best. I'll do my best. You see, in Japan, there is no phrase, or at least culturally, there is no phrase to say, good luck. They don't say good luck. No, they, they don't say good luck in Japan. That, that, they, they have words for luck, and they have words for good, but culturally, 
No one uses the phrase good luck. Let's have a little Japanese lesson here with PKJ. If you were in Japan and you wanted to encourage someone that was a friend to have good luck, you would actually tell them, do your best. And you would say, ganbate, ganbate, ganbate. Yeah, ganbate. Do your best, ganbate. Or something along that, that line, okay? Then, if it was like someone, like you were wishing somebody that's like, going to go on to give a presentation, you're, you're kind of not super close on it, you say, ganbate kudosai. It's a very formal way of saying it. Okay? Very cool. I'm not a master linguist in Japan, Japanese. I looked this up on YouTube this week. But, you see, if you look at the next one, then you could reply to them, I will, or I am doing my best. Okay? Or if it was more professional, hi, gunbate amasu. Okay? There is no luck in this culture. There's no quiz, except for if you're weeb enough and want to know these things, I hope you wrote them down, because I'm not bringing them back. So, all right. So this is, the, but you see, to you, to try to find the Japanese words to say good luck, it just wouldn't make sense in their community, in their culture. It's a culture thing. It's a, it's a, it's a context of translation from another language to English. We all think, oh, everyone speaks English, so it's everything English is the staple language. No. Actually, it's not. Latin is. So, with that, we see that pri we have primary sources and secondary sources. Everyone say primary? Primary. Now, everyone say secondary. Secondary. Primary source, you could say, is Coca-Cola. Who likes Coke? Who's Coke people in here? Raise your hand. Okay? And this is a Coke versus Pepsi, like, like layout. So, who's a Coke products person? Okay? Okay. Who's a Pepsi person in here? Okay. Wow. I'm actually surprised at the, at the division in the room between there. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, basically. So you see, now you could say that Coke is the primary source and, and Pepsi is the secondary source, because you know Pepsi is secondary. So sorry, Pepsi people. But you know, here's the thing is they both Coke was originated first, okay? They actually had cocaine in it, uh, just so you know, it was medical uh, use for medicinal purposes. That's why it's called Coke. Alright. But both of them are correct in their attempt to be a brown sugary soda with a vanilla vanilla flavor that has essence of spices. However, Coke wants to be more nutmeggy, okay, and, and cinnamony, whereas Pepsi really wants to be citrusy. In fact, Pepsi wins the sip test. Did you guys know that? It's best at the first sip, but it loses its citric uh, citricity, is that a word? I think it is. Yeah. And the, the longer you drink it. So at the last drink, you're like, man, this wasn't as good as it started. Yeah, that's because it's not. That's how it's designed. But Coke is the stable all the way through, same flavor. Uh, and basically, when you see, when we're writing a translation of a, of a language, okay, into English, okay, into English, that happens when you take the original primary source and then you translate it into the language you want to be. So you go from Hebrew to Arabic or from Hebrew to English or Hebrew to Japanese. When you start going from now the English version to Japanese or the Arabic version to a Japanese version and then from the Japanese version to an English version, you start to get things really confused. Everybody, anybody ever watch a show with subtitles on? Like an like a Asian show? But like, you know, martial arts? Sometimes they just don't make sense. Like, unless, like, especially the ones that aren't, like, edited for Americans to read, you're reading, like, that sentence structure does not exist, you know? Okay? So, it doesn't, you know? It don't exist. But, you know, 
So basically, writing the Bible from an English trans, writing another translation of the Bible from an English translation is kind of like expecting something and ending up with a fresh E. cola. Okay, you, got, you guys ever heard of fresh tea? Yeah, yeah. Well, fresh E. cola. I'm pretty sure it's uh, something over in Iran. I, I think that's Sanskrit on the screen. But nothing to knock on them. But that's not Coke. It's not Pepsi. But it's made to taste like those, right? It's a secondary source. So how do we get the what we have the Bible now? Well, this is fun. Just remember these names. John Wycliffe, Martin Luther, and William Tyndale. Pioneers in writing and translating uh, the Bible into English for people to read it for themselves. Prior to that, they had to have a scholar read it to them or a priest. So if you ever hear those names, celebrate it. Ultimately, though, it wasn't until we had the King James Version. Anyone know that? Anybody have a KJV? Who's got a KJV? Yeah, representing the KJV. Do you know that there were 54 scholars involved in translating the King James Version from its original text to English? I thought it was just King James. No, no. He appointed 54 scholars. And he avoided strict literalism in favor of an extensive use of synonym, which was actually a masterpiece of Jacobian English back in that time uh, by, uh, for English-speaking Protestants. And it went, it was stayed for about 270 years untouched. Like, people were like, this one is the approved version. Like, it's good. We have people criticizing each other to make sure we translate it right. You know, do you, you guys ever wondered what it takes to translate a Bible? No? I'm going to tell you. Good. Glad you asked. All right, qualifications to get a job as a, as a Bible Hebrew scholar translator, to make an official licensed translation of the Bible. You must be born again. You must be called to the ministry of translating. A translator must be walking with God, should be trained in general linguistics, must be trained in theology, should be trained in Greek and Hebrew, must understand the historical and cultural context of the Bible, must thoroughly understand the receiving language and culture must understand the generic and specific meanings of the words of receiving of the receiving language, must understand the principles of Bible translations, must learn to use native speakers of the language as his translation assistants, or in this case, where a translator or native speaker, blah, 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 use native people, experts in linguists in your field, must have the ability to stick to the job hour after hour, day after day, year after year, decade after decade. A translator must be committed to producing a nearest form equivalent translation. A translator must be willing to give up ownership of the translation. A translation that is faithfully done to, to the glory of God belongs to God, not the translator. A translator must be willing for the translation to be revised when the users point out areas where the translation is less than accurate or adequate. The translation must take a team approach rather than attempting to produce one-man translations. The translator may have only himself and his translation assistants on the field. No one else out there to bring outside influence there. In some extreme cases, it may be only himself. However, the translator should seek help with organizations like Global Bible Translation. Wow. Someone say wow. wow. Now slap your neighbors for sleeping. There we go. I thought this was church, not, not information. Okay. Not class. Okay. Thanks, thanks for enduring with me. It's great. It's really fun, honestly. Because, you know, how can you trust the Bible? It's pretty important to ask that question. So why, would, why do we need so many different translations? You know that there are over four, that there are over 450 currently used translations right now? In English? Name all of them. 
I have a wiki link for you. Thanks for asking. I'll share it in my bio. All right, link in my bio. Okay. But with that, without without these transla translations, the purpose of them is actually to engage the modern readers of today, so they can easily understand it without the necessity of knowing thousands of years of cultural history, Eastern, Western, Southern, Northern hemispheres, and and their and their popular implications. Take a quick peek here. What I mean at First Samuel chapter twenty-four, verse three. Let's look at here first at the King James Version. We have a King James Version, 1 Samuel Bible verses up there somewhere. I know my slide's a little small. We can drive back after that. Oh, did you see it? Uh, King James, 1 Samuel 24.3. Do you see it? King James. Yeah, there we go. All right, King James Version. And he came to the sheep. And he came to the sheep goats by the way where I was cave. And Saul went in to cover his feet. And David and his men remained at the sides of the cave. Saul was seeking to kill David, and David and his men were hiding out in the cave, hanging out. Saul stumbles into this cave alone, with his thousands of men army, like outside the cave somewhere. But he went up to this cave to cover his feet. That's weird. By himself. What, what, what is the uh, van, uh, Show me the NIV. Okay, next one. Let's read it together. One, two, three. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. Make more sense. Cover his feet. Man, I, whenever I pee in the woods, I try not to splash on my feet. Uh, but apparently that was a actually an idiomatic saying of the time that was understood. In England. In England. To cover one's feet was like, I'm going to the powder room. What? Yeah. What a weird country. Now, would that make any sense to you today? No. So that's why we need different translations as time goes on. Just likewise, what if, what if I told you, uh, who, who, does, who doesn't have a job here? Raise your hand. Like you're not employed. Praise God. Hallelujah. All right. So that's great. So Isaiah... Let's say minimum wage, boom, went up to 15 bucks an hour here, okay? That's right here in, in like Seattle? Okay, all right. You, you have that understanding, right? Okay, so what if I said I'm going to hire you for minimum wage to work here at Sunrise and build cool toys for me? Will you do that? Yes. Yes. Cool, awesome, thanks. Um, by the way, my, my understanding of minimum wage is from 1960, which is $1.40 an hour. You're cool with that, right? So, so you see how time and translations and understanding of things are important? Because you wouldn't want to go out and work at McDonald's for minimum wage in 1960 when the minimum wage today in Seattle would be $15. You'd be working for 10% less, almost less than 10%, like 9%, okay? You don't want that. It's no good. So when we look at Bible translations, there's three different types. Everyone say three types. Three types. We're almost done. Well, there's word for word. Everyone say word for word. Word for word. Thought for thought. thought. Parapha paraphrase or devotional. So in this context of working for money, no jobs, uh, word for word translation would be like that hours for dollars. I'm going to go get paid X amount of money per hour. Sometimes you get less money. Sometimes you get more money. Sometimes you're wondering why the government took so much out of your paycheck because you know you hit a new tax bracket because you work too much overtime. Who knows what it is? But all I'm saying is basically you end up 
you, when you read the word-for-word -word translations, sometimes you read something that says he covered his feet, and you've got to put a little more work into it to understand why that means what. Whereas the thought-for-thought -thought is kind of more like the salary version, you know, like, like it's consistent, there's less math, you sometimes end up doing more work because if you want to understand a little bit more what it really meant when you're reading the Bible, but you, you know what, it, it adds up in the end, it's consistent, it's dependable. Whereas the paraphrase, the devotional, is kind of like being a business owner with ADHD and bipolar schizophrenia, okay? It doesn't go so well. Um, you might get like a radical breakthrough with great insights, but not, with the, uh, not without the risk of like dangerous squirrel brain uh, that will cause you to lose it all, okay? Just saying that's kind of what you're looking at, which it, it really, it, it should be an excuse for us to be lazy Christians and not understand the historical context of the Bible. If you understand the worldview that the Bible is written to, it will transform your relationship with God and your understanding of his word. Just remember this big key part right here. Remember, the Bible wasn't actually written to you. It was written for you. It wasn't written to you. It was written for you. It's not a long letter from Jesus. It was written for you. Hell is paved with good intentions, Samuel Johnson said. In battle, you might come up against this phrase where it says, danger close. Anybody ever hear that? Danger close. That basically means the target you're shooting at has got some of your friends up there too. So you, uh, you need to keep shooting, but... Don't kill your friends. Friendly fire mode is on in real life, okay? You see, I believe we see this happen often too much when people take a little bit much of a license with their paraphrases, their devotions. We've heard of the message translation. I'm not going to beat up on the message. It's got, it's got its purpose. But, you know, there's another one that pops out that's a paraphrase version known as the passion translation. I'm going to tell you right now, it's trash, so I apologize if you or your mom read it. Like, go throw it away. But it's okay. I'm going to explain to you why, though. I just wanted to tell you... Don't read it. There's someone that has written a translation of the Bible called the Passion. Okay? Passion translation. People love this translation. They love it, love it, love it. Let me tell you something about it. It is 50% longer than the original, right? Than the, than, than the King James Version of the Bible. 50%. What? That means you take your thick Bible, add another half, is how much more has been added to it. It's translated by one man, remember our, our, our rules about uh, translators, from mostly secondary texts, meaning he's read English, Amplified Version, King James Version, and translated from that, and has some Hebrew translation as he did some for another language once. It has no credible scholars, as he's not accredited as a scholar. Author Brian Simmons claims Jesus visited him, pers visited him personally, took him to the Library of Heaven, and asked him to write this translation, and claims to receive regular downloads of secrets of Hebrew language to better communicate what God intended to say. And, believe, and he believes that Jesus has promised him to bring him back to heaven to give him the 22nd chapter of the book of John. No! 22nd? Which doesn't exist. So let's look at Psalms 18, 1 real fast. NIV says, I love you, Lord, my strength. ESV, English Standard Version, says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. King James Version, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Passion Translation, Lord, I passionately love you. I want to embrace you, for now you have become my power. Is that, does that settle... Like, like, like it's communicating the same thing. 
Now, I'm going to tell you this, though. I'm going to tell you this. Things like the message translation and, and these paraphrased versions, they're not bad, but they should not be your primary sources for studying the Word of God as they can dramatically derail your relationship with God and the fundamental truth of the gospel. You see, in, their, in people's attempts to make the Bible more easily understood to its current common-day readers, they actually screw it up totally. So I'm, I want to just encourage you, well, what can I read? What is safe? Well, if you want a word-for-word, word, which means going to be like, sometimes it's not going to make sense, an interlinear Bible is really intense. Really intense. Like you're not going to read it well. But a NASBA, New, New American Standard, or an Amplified, or an ESV is going to be a solid... I would probably encourage, if you're a high schooler in here, to, to grab that one. If you're a middle schooler, or maybe you're really new to the Bible, NIV, that's going to be more of a thought for thought. It's, try, it's communicating the same thoughts, yes? There, there is, and it's on the, it's on the scale, and it's actually, the NLT, uh, New Living Translation, is a good translation, but it's more closer to the paraphrase. It goes from word for word to paraphrase, but it's, it's, it's within there near the message, I believe. I can pull up the little graph where you guys didn't put all of them up there, but it's on there. Um, and additionally, so yeah, uh, the NIV is a really great starter, or New King James as well is good as well. Um, but yeah, the Living Bible and the Message, uh, they're good as a secondary. Man, I just read this Bible verse. I wonder what, what the Message would say. They're just bringing any more under revelation to it. You know, any more understanding. Help me understand. But as far as like the Passion, you could put that right alongside the Book of Mormon. No hate on Mormons. But no hate on Mormons. But I want to tell you, the Book of Mormon was given to, uh, gosh, what is his name? I wrote it down. John, yes. John, John, Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith, by divine revelation of an angel who led him to like golden tablets that had special scripture and writings that he now has another translation. And the Bible does say, you know, be wary if anyone asks or takes away from this word, I'll add or take away from him the, you know, his punishment. So it, it ultimately boils down to a form of Gnosticism, which is a big word you don't have to worry about. But ultimately, here's what we're going to chat about briefly, is are your current translations of the Bible reliable? Well, to be honest, no. Not unless you want fresh cola. Okay? It's, it, and that's the thing. Don't get caught up when people ask you a question and the answer isn't yes or no. That's where people think they get you. Because in life, it's mostly not yes or no answers. It, it, it's very difficult to ascribe a yes or a no definitively to someone's statement towards you. It's like, are our, 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 our translations all accurate? No. But does that mean that they're not some that are perfect and accurate and over a thousand years, not a single line of information was changed in the book, in the scroll of Isaiah, outside of a few little spelling changes that did not change the content at all. Yes, we do have that. In New King James, ESV, uh, New American Standard, reliable, they're back, they're studied, they're revised, they have teams of people working on making sure that God's word remains as unchanged as that book of Isaiah that was discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls. In fact, fun fact, that book, about, that scroll of Isaiah, once it was discovered in 1970, I think, or 40, it's nah, no big deal. It's actually the oldest scroll in human existence right now. 
that we have, unless there's another one buried somewhere we haven't found yet. There's other writings on tablets and stones that are a little bit older than that, but as far as written on the scroll, that's it. So, in your discussions, what did Pastor Kevin mean, the Bible wasn't written to you, but written for you? And how can you better understand the Bible? And why is it important for you today? Let's bow our heads, let's bless God. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it has remained true, and it is good for teaching, equipping, edifying, for strengthening us, for leading us, for guiding us, Lord God, and most of all, revealing God to mankind and our need for a Savior, that is Jesus. Heavenly Father, I pray that you bless our short times here at Small Group. I thank you for the extended time of worship we had this morning, and I thank you for allowing me, Lord God, in my own uh, you know, passion to go a little bit longer this morning, because I really feel like it's important for us to hold fast to the truth, God. Hold fast to your word. Let your word remain true in every man a liar. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like more information about the show, Kevin's work, or you have questions or would like to be a guest on this podcast, please reach out to me directly on my Instagram at kevin.scott.johnson. I look forward to hearing from you. God bless.